Everything around us states it, right? All the major department stores, all their sales, they say we're in the season. JCPenney, Macy's, Sears. Starbucks even says we're in the season. Their theme this year is making spirits bright. Major department stores give us the idea and say that uh, if you buy more in this season, you'll spread more joy. (laughs) Starbucks says if you drink more in this season through our multifaceted flavored coffees, you'll find more joy. Everything in this season points to joy. Joy is an interesting word because every single one of us have an idea or an image in our mind of what joy looks like, what joy sounds like, what joy means. And so with that idea, what I want to do is in a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor. And I'm going to ask you to ask them what their definition of joy is. Or when they say the word joy or hear the word joy, what automatically comes to mind? Ready? Go. Because now comes the fun part. I get to ask you what they said. (laughs) All right, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to start right here in the center, and I'm going to ask some of our teenagers, like Chloe Richardson, when you turn to your neighbor and you ask them what the definition of joy was or what they heard, what did they say? Happiness. Absolutely. That's something that we sell in this season, right? That we need happiness. Let's see, Dara Furman, what did you hear when they said the word joy? Your mama. (laughs) Absolutely, my mama. Our mothers bring us joy, right? Let's go over here. I'm going to go all the way down here on this end. I'm just prepping you guys. Hey, Sherry Jengo, what, what did your neighbors say when they heard that word joy? Food and family. See, we all have these different images in our minds or our different definitions of what joy is. In a moment, by way of video, I'm going to introduce you to a guy named Ed. And we're going to listen and see what Ed's definition of of joy is. So if you would turn your attentions to the screen, let's look and see what Ed has to say about joy. Ed here. You can't have Christmas without joy can't have joy without Christmas. Finding joy means giving. Really giving. That's where joy comes from. You gotta sacrifice your dollars for gifts. Everything has a cost. Maybe I gotta run around for five, ten minutes. Well, maybe sometimes hours, but it's worth it. When you go shopping, you are looking for something special for someone else. And usually what they want is what they need. But I can see 
in someone's eyes and know exactly what they want. Merry Christmas. You gotta do it. You gotta do Christmas. It's the aftermath of shopping. That's the secret to joy. <laughs> so how many of us think that uh, Ed has a good view of what joy is? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> joy is an interesting and fascinating emotion because a lot of times when we experience joy in our form or in our definition, we have ways of justifying why we do those things that bring us joy. The holiday seasons at this time is a great example because we have a justified reason as to why to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on gifts because we feel that it'll bring joy to others. And there's nothing wrong with giving gifts. It's just when we flow out of our emotions, we make different decisions. Now, according to the video, Ed says that we can't have joy without Christmas. And we can't have Christmas without joy. So if we're supposed to have joy in this once a year festival of lights and ribbons and multicolored paper, what is joy? How do we define it? What does it really look like? We've felt it, we've seen it, we've experienced it all in some kind of form if for each and every single one of us. But joy is hard to put into words. And the joy that we're going to talk about today, I don't believe is a seasonal joy. I believe that the joy that God has intended for each one of us is an eternal joy. Not a once a year joy, but a forever joy. It also says that joy involves sacrifice and it comes with a cost. And when I think about this Christmas season and I see a man in a big red suit handing out candy canes and children drooling over boxes that are wrapped full of mystery, I really have a hard time envisioning Jesus' definition of joy. Now understand that Santa Claus and candy canes and presents, they're all good and they're all fun. But sometimes I feel that it's easy to set up a different idea of what joy really is compared to what Christ's definition of joy is. I like what Ed says because he said, I know what people want, and usually what people want is what they need. I think about Santa Claus. Santa Claus, from what we're told, he knows what we want, and obviously what we want is what we need. Then I think about Satan, our enemy. He happens to know what we want, and he obviously knows what we want is what we need. At least that's what he tells us. But I'm reminded in the scriptures of one man who walked this earth. He was God and he was man. He lived a mystery, something that we can't wrap our heads around sometimes, that there was this man, but he was also God in the flesh. And his name was Jesus. Jesus had this understanding of what people wanted. And he knew what they wanted and he knew what they needed far above anybody else that would ever exist and walk this earth. He knew that what people wanted and what they needed would be eternal and not just temporary. It would not be a seasonal thing for them. And so we find in the Bible that it tells us that in discouraging moments, God rejoices over us. God rejoices over us. Now see, this is something to be excited about. 
But it's hard when we're in this Christmas season for some of us because when we're visual people and we have all this excitement going on around us, but there's those issues in our lives, those situations in our lives that just don't seem to make sense, that just are not joyful at this time. For some of us, it's hard for us to rejoice in those discouraging moments when we're dealing with a divorce in this season. It's hard for us to put on a great, happy, and smiley face and parade around like everything is okay when we have a family member struggling with drug abuse. Where do we find joy in those discouraging moments? The Bible sketches a different view of joy. It has no relationship with success. It has no relationship with money. It has no relationship with possessions. Zephaniah had an interesting analysis of joy as well. Zephaniah was a prophet, what you could say a full-time spokesman for God. He was stationed in this place called Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the hub. It was the central gathering point for the Jewish people. And not only there was the gathering point for the Jews, but there was this building called the temple. The temple was built because it was designed to be a temporary residence where the presence of God would come down and visit his people. That was the temple. And we find Zephaniah, this prophet, this spokesman of God, stationed here in the city of Jerusalem. But we find the more that we read about the prophet Zephaniah that he encountered some problems in this city. In fact, we read the more Zephaniah pens the words of God, we see that Israel was still dealing with a corrupted political system a corrupted religious system, and a corrupted social system. But here was Zephaniah's point. God still had a plan in the midst of those discouraging moments. Something great was about to happen and rise up. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus would live out his final moments of his life where he would birth forth a fresh, transforming joy into the earth, the whole earth, and out of this corrupted nation, a message of change would rise up for everyone. In these moments of discouragement, we must turn our crisis into a turning point. So it was on August 8th. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was bright and it was sunny. I was at home with my family. I remember it so clear. I was sitting at our table, and I was just talking with my wife when I received a phone call from my mother. On the other end, my mom was crying. And I received the news that my sister had cancer and that it was aggressive. I received the news that she had cancerous tumors that were located in her cervix. And the whole fact was that the cancer was not only aggressive and the tumors were not only in her cervix, but they were so huge that there was no way they could operate on those tumors to remove them. And on top of that, the, the cancer was so aggressive that radiation wouldn't even bother to touch it. And that she had a matter of months before she would die. I remember hanging up the phone and at that moment, that sunny, warm day turned to a cold, chilly day in my heart. 
We immediately got in the car and we began to drive to my family's house, to my sister's where all of our family would come together. In the moment of crisis, I didn't know how to make it into a turning point. I'm going to be very honest with you, I had a lot of struggles. I cried a lot. I questioned God a lot. You mean as a pastor, you question God? Yeah, I did. In fact, there's a couple times I got really angry with God. Got right in his face. You know, I told my sister one time, I said, you know, when everybody else has cancer, you know, you kind of think, yeah, I'll pray for you and I'll pray you through this and, you know, God's going to heal you and everything's going to be okay. And, and, and then it's like you move on with your life. And when it's someone right there with you and it's close to you and it's in your own backyard, everything changes in that moment. My whole view about God only just changed in that moment. And I was so angry and I remember driving in that car and there was very little conversation because I was meditating on what is going on, God, and why now? Why my sister? I didn't know at the moment how to turn my crisis into a turning point. Yeah, I knew that God still rejoices over us in discouraging moments, but I didn't know what to do next. What do I do with a dying sister? See, Israel faced the same similar moments of crucial change. Everything up to this point in the book of Zephaniah did not talk about singing, did not talk about rejoicing. It was all lopsided, but at the crux of their crisis, joy was experienced. Look with me in verse 14 and 15 in Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah breaks forth with this encouragement and he sings, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your, your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. See, up until this point, <laughs> there was no encouragement to sing. And you see, you've got to understand, in the life of a Jewish person, worship was critical. Just like every follower of Jesus in our lives, we are called to be a people of worship. A people who express our heart to God through singing. And there was no push to go and sing. In fact, the Jewish people had three types of expression when it came to worship. The first one was singing. The second one was lamenting, and the third one was wailing. And until this point in the book of Zephaniah, they only knew how to do two things, lament and wail. Imagine your life right now, that's all you know how to do is lament and how to wail. You don't know singing at this point, because you don't see anything to come. You don't see anything, you don't see that turning point in the midst of your crisis. You see, the command to sing and shout and be glad and rejoice was a statement to the nation that a dramatic change was about to happen for the better. All of a sudden, Zephaniah breaks in with this whole new revelation, this new aha of an idea. And he says, put your head up, Jerusalem. Put your head up. God's about to do something great. And Israel changed their crisis into a turning point. But how? So I arrive at my sister's. And immediately I'm greeted by my mom. And I love my mom. 
my mom's a follower of Jesus. And immediately she grabs a hold of me and pulls me aside and says, you know, you're the pastor of the family. And uh, maybe you should just gather everybody up and pray with them. And at that moment, I was just so angry. I wanted to fire back at my mom and say, you want me to pray for him? You want me to pray? Yeah, I'll pray. I'll pray. I'll pray a real good prayer. My sister's in the other room, and who knows, we only got six months to live. You want me to pray? Yeah, I feel real good about that. Needless to say, we didn't pray. (laughs) In case you were wondering, how did he pull that off? (laughs) Yeah, we didn't pray. We just sat around, and sometimes in those moments, the best thing to do is not to say anything at all. But just to enjoy the moment. Later on, when we left that house, we didn't know what the outcome would be. The doctors at that time, everything was up in the air. Nobody really had a solid answer. But when I got alone with God, I knew that there was one who would have a solid answer, and it would be him. I had to return back to my lover. I had to return back to my father. And I had to turn back to the word of God. Because that's what I knew how to do. And in that moment of crisis, yes, I was operating out of all that I knew inside my flesh was to be disappointed in the midst of the crisis. But when I went back to my father, I realized that I had to take this and have it turn to a turning point. Something had to shift. And so when I got into the word, I realized that singing and shouting and rejoicing is choosing to step into the discouraging moments surrounding us and worship God regardless. It didn't matter what the doctors said. It did not matter what my family said. The choice that I had at that moment was only one, and it was to get into the face of God and begin to worship regardless. But you see, when we've lost our journey with Jesus, we enter into busyness. When we are stuck in that moment that is discouraging or in that crisis, it is so easy for us to set aside our journey with Jesus and get into that realm of busyness. And return to what we know how to do best before we knew Christ. The singing stops and the relationship is quenched. And when we lose sight of that turning point, we miss his rejoicing over us. If you go back into Zephaniah here in verse 14 and 15, he uses this phrase, daughter of Jerusalem. What that phrase actually means, it's a title. Jerusalem didn't have a physical daughter. Jerusalem is the daughter of God. Just like we are sons and daughters of God. If you have confessed with your mouth and you believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you are a follower of Christ. And it says in the word of God that when you become a follower of Christ, you become a son or a daughter. Whether you're male or female, you become a son or a daughter of God. That word in there, when it says, O daughter of Jerusalem, it actually means dear one. It means a title of affection that God has for us. And in that moment of crisis, when I was coming to that place of turning point, I felt that God was singing over me, his dear one, his one of affection. And he was just saying to me, in this moment, as you rejoice and as you sing in the midst of your crisis... Regardless of what you hear and think, I am true to my promises. 
I am true to my word, and I am true to my children. You see, I had to come to this, this, this place where I was comfortable knowing that the situation may not change, but what was going on inside of me would. The whole process with my family during this time was amazing. Yes, we were scared. Yes, we weren't sure how this would turn out. But the development of my family took a turn that we had never seen before. My sister's children began to appreciate life, began to appreciate their parents at a greater degree. My sister and her husband, who are followers of Christ, took their relationship with Jesus to a whole new level. They weren't so much worried about the situation, but they realized that regardless of how it would turn out, there was a process of change that was going to take place inside of them, and they embraced it. You see, same way with Israel. At the forefront, things didn't look like they were going to change. And Zephaniah steps into the picture, and he says, I've got a word from God. Hey, everybody, I've got some exciting news. God wants us to begin to sing and shout and rejoice and celebrate because something is about to change in the crisis. In fact, he wants us to change our crisis into a turning point. The truth is that so much of what we like to label as life joys are really just temporary. And that's why God wants us to understand this whole thing about eternal joy. The sexual pleasure is temporary. That marital affair that you are pondering about engaging in, I'm telling you, is temporary. That job status that you are hungering for and you are driving for and that you're leaving your family behind for in the midst of all those nights instead of spending time with them is temporary. That that nest of finance that you have just been working for and working for and working for is temporary. They make us feel high quality for the moment, but they don't last. Celebrating Christmas and sharing gifts is wonderful, but we must live with God-infused joy. The story's generated for generations. On and on and on, mostly carrying the same tone over and over and over, the same theme, the same tone. That there would be this one, this one Savior that would grace the city, the nation, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. His presence alone would grace that nation. And he would come and deliver us of our current circumstances, of our current crisis, of our current discouragement. Dreams filled the people's minds of what it would be like the day that we would not be submitted to the bondage of others. That we would not have to answer to the Roman government They looked for the day when they would eat differently, where they would talk differently, where they would be able to worship in a different way, and that no one would be able to be be there and tell them and say, no, you cannot do that. Everything would be different. What we call the Christmas story was more than a plastic figurine. It was more than the integral part of a nativity set for Israel. The birth of the anointed one, the Messiah, was the beginning to the end of injustice for all. 
You see, Israel had it backwards. They were living for a temporary joy. Israel had this idea that when this Messiah, this anointed one would come, that he would be the one to deliver them from the current bondage they were in, that he would wipe out the Roman government and annihilate everything, and that life would be grand once again. Because all Israel had known up until that point was bondage and slavery. But see, Jesus comes along and he says, I've got something better than your temporary joy. In fact, I have an eternal joy. I have a God-infused joy that will outlast the Roman government. In fact, my joy that I infuse within you will take you all the way till I come back again for the second coming of Christ. It's not a temporary joy. Look with me at verse 16. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear. O Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. Underline that phrase. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He is quiet. Circle that word quiet. He, is, he will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And the sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. For they are a burden and a reproach. Underline that word reproach. <laughs> so Zephaniah the prophet, he comes back again and he exhorts the nation even further. And he says, hey guys, here's the deal. The giver of the gift to come. The giver of the gift to come commands you as a nation to abstain from all fear. What, is this guy crazy? Does he have a clue what's going on here? And Zephaniah says, no, guys, look, look, trust me. He wants you to abstain from all fear because this is what he's telling you. This is what is going on in the midst of this situation. And he says, keep your arms from a posture of resignation. When he's talking about the hands hanging limp, he's saying, don't give up in the moment. Don't retire because something's about to happen. Do not give in. And that word quiet there actually means I'm about to renew you. And when he says rejoice, it means that God is going to sing over you with joy. And that word reproach is shame. So what does that have to do with us? We're not Israel. We're not Jerusalem. You see, the uncreated God, in our moment of discouragement, in the midst of the crisis, breathes into our state of discouragement. And when he does that, he begins to sing over us and restore to us God-infused joy. You ever meet those annoying people that just seem to always be happy and they always tell you, I got the strength of God. How you doing today? I am moving in the strength of the Lord. <laughs> I'm one of those annoying people. <laughs> but there's a reason why. When we are filled with that God-infused joy, we can't operate out of our own strength in the midst of the situation. We begin to operate out of the strength of Christ that is infused within us. That is how we come to that place where we can say, I'm moving in the strength of Christ. You see, it can be hard for us to accept this when we're visual people. Israel was a visual people. Everything that they did was symbolic. And it's hard for us when we can't see things to live out a God-infused life full of joy. 
Have you ever thrown up a few prayers to God and just say, would you give me a sign? Would you tell me that you're listening at least? Would you tell me that you're there and that this, there's nothing in between us, but you're really there listening? Israel did. Israel asked for a sign. In fact, years later, we read about the angel proclaiming to some shepherds in a field that the anointed one had come. Look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will, find him, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. You see, apart from Jesus, those sales at Macy's, that new craftsman tool set that you have been really longing for this year, the hopes of that new car with the big bow on it that will be in your driveway, hopefully, on Christmas morning when you wake up, it's all temporary. It'll either die out, rust out, be destroyed, or be stolen. But the brilliant factor about the joy of God, the brilliant factor about a God-infused joy is that it flows from Christ and it can never be taken away from us. It can never be stolen. It will never corrode away. It'll never rust out. You see, Israel had a history of being robbed. So when Christ came, it had to be something. He had to bring something that could not be stolen. He had to bring something that could not rust away. You see, Israel had their culture stolen away from them. Israel had their freedom swept out from under their feet and stolen from them. So when this Messiah comes, he just can't come and make a promise and not follow through with it. He has to bring the goods. You see, Zephaniah was stating that this is a gift that wouldn't be temporary and it wouldn't require a gift receipt. So this season, we won't find him in a manger. We won't find him hanging on a cross on the wall. We will find the Christ among one another, among those that we encounter in the grocery stores, those on our campuses, those in our workplaces. Because he's alive, because he's eternal, because he's relational, because he's real. Living God-infused joy is an invitation to party and celebrate eternal salvation. See, God-infused joy is not about what happens on December 25th. God-infused joy is not a once-a-season celebration. It's not on December 31st when we roll in the new year. It's not at Easter time either. God-infused joy is daily. It's a lifestyle. It is a call to celebrate the cross of Christ. Even in the midst of your crisis, even in the midst of the discouragement, it is a call to rise to that place and be excited because we have one thing that will never be taken away from us, the cross. That is what God-infused joy is. Now here's the great thing. God is joyful because he knows what is coming next. Therefore, we need to declare the language of promise. I say, wait a minute, are you making this up? No. <laughs> it's in the Word of God. 
You see, the language of promise is when we take the word of God, the scriptures, what we call the logos, and we combine it, we partner it with the prophetic edge of God, or what we call prophecy. Prophecy is like Zephaniah, when Zephaniah said, at this time, meaning that this is about to come. You may not see it right now, but this is what's going to happen. The language of promise is taking those words that God has given us to others or through the word of God that says, this will happen to your situation. And we infuse it, we combine it with the word of God, and then we begin to declare it back to our Father. Look with me at verse 19. At that time, notice that at that time. He doesn't say right now. He says at that time. That's the prophetic. I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they, will put, where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune before your very eyes, says the Lord. So at that time, I went before God with my language of promise regarding my sister. I was in a broken state. And I cried out to God, and I, I began to read the scriptures, proclaiming that, God, you are a God of heals. You are a God who can take away disease. According to your stripes, you know, we are healed. We know all of those healing verses in the word of God. And as I quoted all of those, I quoted, and I said, God, if you're able to do this, but here's the deal, God, I understand that if you choose to do something different, and if you choose to take my sister, then I am in agreement with it. If that's your way to heal the situation, I will stand with you, and I will stand in agreement. That's kind of funny because, you know, who are we as humans to say, well, God, you know, if you work that out, that's cool. I'm fine with that. But in that moment, I brought before God my language of promise. My sister goes to the doctor's, they do a scan, and the scan comes back, and they say that the tumors that were so huge we couldn't operate on and remove them had shrunk. They're so small now that we can actually go in, we can do surgery, we can remove all the cancer so you'll be cancer-free, and you will not have to have chemotherapy. My sister's alive and cancer-free today. You see, Scripture combined with the prophetic edge becomes an arsenal of weapons and rations for followers of Jesus. The language of promise drives the enemy ballistic. He hates it. Do you notice that when you get down and you're in that crisis or you're in that moment of discouragement, do you notice the first thing you want to do is, is jump and sing and shout? Do you notice you're like, yeah, man, I am so pumped up about this crisis, I can't wait. I'm going to just praise Jesus. We don't do that. No, the first thing that we want to do is we want to sulk. We want to isolate ourselves. We want to pull away from everybody. And we want to say, oh, woe is me, God. Oh, you know, and that's not the case. Because the enemy wants us to do that. 
But when we shift into that place and we come with our language of promise before, the, before God, it drives him insane. I can just see him pulling his hair out if he has any. I don't know. His horns, his hair, whatever. I don't know. But anyways, I can just see him going crazy because he's like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. I wish you wouldn't have said that. Okay, all right. It's cool. It was only one time. No, 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 no. I hate it when they worship. Oh, and they use that prophecy. Oh, man, now God's got to fulfill that. Okay. See, that is part of our arsenal in those moments of discouragement. But not only that, on the other hand, these words act as rations for the body of Christ. They feed us. The word of God combined with the prophetic feeds us and nourishes us. So they fill us up to supply us for the spiritual energy that we need to press on. Problems in crisis become irrelevant when we know that we win. You see, you may be dealing with cancer and it doesn't look good. I prayed for my sister and she was healed. I don't have an answer for you. I wish I could stand here and say everyone will be healed. Your marriage may be falling apart right now. And I wish that I could stand here and say, no problem. God's going to restore it 100% and everything's going to come out in the wash and it's going to be pure and clean and perfect. But I can't. But one thing that I can promise you is this. The one thing that I can promise you is the cross. That we will win regardless of the situation. That these moments that are temporary, the temporary joys will all pass away, but we have one eternal joy that we can hang on to regardless of our crisis, is that we are winners and the enemy is a loser and that we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. You see, the promises of Jesus always succeed. And that is something to sing about. That is something to be joyful about. That is something to be excited about. And there is this continuous joy that flows deep in Christ that the enemy cannot access. But we can. And that is awesome. To access it, we need to learn how to celebrate in all things. We have to declare it. And we have to wear it. We have to declare and wear. In those moments, I began to slip into a state of depression. And when God spoke to me and said, Jason, you need to wear my joy. I said, what? You need to put on my joy. You need to put my yoke on you and take yours off. And you need to begin to declare the joy of the Lord. You see, we need to jump into our situation and we need to clothe ourselves in those words of promise. We need to clothe ourselves in those words that are written in the scripture that God has for our situation. Our role in the earth is not to be sorrowful and to be glum, but it is to be joyful and to proclaim the promises of God. The promise in the midst of our disappointments is that he'll make all things right eternally. 
The enemies of our situations will be gathered and removed, but he will restore us. And in the midst of our disappointments, God rejoices over us. I'm going to ask that you stand with me at this moment. And this is not the time to run out. Because in a moment, we're going to make a very important declaration as a body. In a few moments, Jenny is going to lead us in the song called, It Is Well. I feel that it's a very appropriate declaration as a body. That in the midst of crisis, in the midst of disappointment, we rise to that level where we can sing and rejoice and say, regardless of whatever it is, it is well with my soul. So when Jenny leads us in this song, we will sing it together and declare it, and then I will come back and I will pray us out and dismiss us. Jenny, would you please lead us? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll,
Father, this morning, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what we're dealing with, you're fully aware of it. And Father, I pray that in these moments of discouragement and crisis, we would be reminded that you rejoice over us. That you call us to turn our crisis into a turning point. To live a God-infused joy. And Father, we just thank you so much that the cross is our eternal joy. That in this season, God, we will not look at face value. But Father, we will realize that it's a lifestyle for eternity. So Lord, I pray that those who have questions in their circumstances will find answers from you. And Father, we pray, God, that Lord, we would be a witness in all the earth of your joy. And that when people ask, why are we so joyous? The one answer that we would give is because of Jesus, because of the cross. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And most of all, we thank you that the promises of Jesus always succeed. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a good day.